Hey, Girl Boss. This is your host, Sophia Amoruso, founder and CEO of Girl Boss. We have a great guest for you today. She's the New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and digital strategist, Lovey Ajayi. Before we get to that, I want to tell you about the Girl Boss Rally. We are just weeks away, and this is going to be a big one. It's our first two day Girl Boss Rally. Ariana Huffington is speaking, Bozema St. John is speaking, and we have, I don't know, over 50 other incredible speakers. And we also have shopping bazaar. So we have tons of incredible small vendors. You can shop that for just $30. The Girlboss Rally is coming to Brooklyn November 17th and 18th. You can buy two-day tickets, one-day tickets, shopping tickets, whatever your heart desires. And to learn more, go to girlbossrally.com and check us out at girlbossrally on Instagram. And if you want to join the future of Girlboss, the Girlboss Collective, which the Wall Street Journal talked about last week, uh, you can go to collective girlboss.com and request early access and you'll be on a list of currently 20 something thousand people which is pretty exciting and we want you to be there before anybody else and remember if you like what you hear in today's show go ahead and rate review subscribe and tell a friend we'll get to our chat with lovey in just a second but first i'm going to talk a little bit about stitch fix Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. I can't tell you how many Stitch Fix packages come in and out of the girl boss offices here, but the team is addicted and the quality is incredibly high. And they have options for you no matter your size, your budget. You can get your fix monthly, weekly, whenever you want. It doesn't have to be a subscription. And their styling fee is just $20, which is applied toward anything you keep from your shipment. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. And you get a personal stylist who will handpick five items to send right to your door. I know I can't wait to get my next box. So get started now at stitchfix.com girlboss, and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com girlboss to get started today. Stitchfix.com girlboss. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Lovey Ajayi is an award-winning author, speaker, and digital strategist thriving at the intersection of comedy, technology, and activism. Her debut book, I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual, was an instant New York Times bestseller. So I literally tweeted, is there not a limited edition handbook on how not to be terrible at being humans? And... I was like, that's the book I'm supposed to write. It was literally a light bulb moment of, there it is. The 15-year blogging veteran covers all things pop culture at awesomelylovey.com. On her new podcast, Rants and Randomness, she shares her most pressing rants, raves, and faves, and also interviews super interesting guests. 
Levy is also a sought-after speaker who has a viral TED Talk and has spoken at places like the White House, Makers Conference, and South by Southwest. I called my friend Unique, and she says, and I was like, everybody has had a speaking coach for the last four months with TED, and they've had their talks, they rehearsed it. I will be showing up two weeks before, brand new. I don't think I can do this. My friend said to me, you've been on 10 stages this fall alone. This has been your prep. You've been coached. And you've been doing this for 10 years. And she goes, and besides, you're not everybody. You're doing this talk. Go write it. She's interviewed uh, Oprah Winfrey, Gina Davis, and Shonda Rhimes. No big deal. Her greatest passion is using her voice for pop culture critique, gender, and racial justice. Today, Lovey is here to share the best way to resist, tips for setting boundaries, and how to overcome imposter syndrome. Let's get to it now. Here's my chat with Lovey Ajayi. So I like to start these episodes with the same question for everybody, and we all had a start, and so many women on this podcast are so accomplished, but I'm curious, what was your first job? Out of college, my first job was marketing intern at a nonprofit that told other nonprofits how to basically uh, tell their stories. Actually, no, that was my second job. My first job was... At a nonprofit also, but it was a journalism nonprofit in Chicago. Okay. Um, called the Chicago Reporter. So, yeah. And you went to the University of Illinois. I did. Did you study journalism? No. Okay. It was an accidental thing. I actually studied psychology. Oh, wow. So, coming into college, uh, the goal was to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor since I was like four. So, I was psychology pre-med was my declared major my freshman year. And then I got a D in chemistry oh, no. and I was like, you know what? I don't even like hospitals. So hmm. let's drop this doctor dream. It's not going to work. <laughs> and then what? That semester I started blogging. My friends peer pressured me starting a web blog, which is what it was called back then. Uh-huh. And I had this blog where I talked about roommate beef exams. I wasn't studying for the D I got. So I have this blog that chronicled my whole undergrad career, but also a year later, one of my friends who ended up being the first black editor-in-chief of the school paper in the 150-year history was like, I love your writing. I want to give you a column in the school paper. And I was like, oh, cool. That's cool. Thought nothing important of it. Did not take it that seriously. But every Wednesday on the back of the paper would be my column. And people would stop me on campus like, oh, my God, I saw your column. That was great. And that's kind of the inception of how I became a writer, not realizing I was becoming a writer. And when did you start this blog? I started that blog in 2003. Wow. Yeah. So what? how many years is that? 15? 15 and a half. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, what what platform were you using? LiveJournal? Like, what were you using? I was on Zanga. Oh, God. That's Zanga? where Michelle Fawn got her start. Really? Yeah. Oh. I don't remember it. <laughs> Zanga was LiveJournal other per thing. So either people had live journals or they had Zanga blogs. Yeah, so I, I was on had... Zanga with a Comic Sans font blog. That was terrible. Oh, man. <laughs> we just got a like a job application in Comic Sans. And I was like, I don't know. Should I be, should I be judging this? Yes, you should. I put it in my book for a reason. You should not use Comic Sans for anything. Lovey told me about her New York Times bestselling book, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. She shared what inspired her to write it and the book's greatest takeaway. I'd actually been approached by a book agent years before, but I was like, I don't have anything to say right now that's book worthy. For me, um, my book idea actually came, it was one of those weird light bulb moments. There are very few that I can remember in my life, but this was one of them. It was 
I remember when I actually got the idea. I got the idea for my book August 4th, 2014 at 6.36 p.m. Central Time. That is highly specific, right? Mm-hmm. And I know you're like, wait, is what? Is that the kind of memory you have? So the reason why is because um, that day when I woke up, my audience knows my voice. Like my voice is singular. So they know when I've written something, even if my byline is not on it. So I had a couple of messages waiting for me that was like, hey, uh, we read this thing and it sounds like you wrote it, but your name is not attached to it. So I click on it. Sure enough, uh, a journalist, I put that in quotation marks, had taken three paragraphs of my work, dropped it in there's zero credit. So I went on like a drag mission that day on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that. I was like, yo, people are still plagiarizing our work out here. I basically spent the whole day dragging him to the point where I had to go take a nap because I was like, whew, I'm exhausted. When I woke up, there was an email from him that was like, hey, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. What? And I was like, wait, what? Did you go to like high school? Or That's what I'm saying. Elementary. Have you ever written a term? Come on. So I literally tweeted, is there not a limited edition handbook on how not to be terrible at human at being humans? And I mean, that's when I question of the era. Right. Yeah. I was like, that's the book I'm supposed to write. It was literally a light bulb moment of there it is. And so what? Tell me about the book. What's the takeaway? Uh, my book is a collection of essays on life and culture and social media and basically why we all have to look at ourselves and figure out how we can leave the world better than we found it. So I called it I'm judging you to kind of grab your attention because we say we don't judge each other, but we do. But we judge each other on very shallow things like our clothes, if our eyebrows are together, as opposed to being like, is that a good person? Are they actually being generous? Are they being kind? Are they not making the world worse than it is? So it's this book. It's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you think. Um, it's essentially like going to brunch with your best friend who's like, yo, I think we can all get better at this whole life, doing life thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the themes of doing better? Like, what would your advice be to do better in life? Because I think we all want to do better in life. Are yeah. there any like key kind of tenets of doing um, better in life? One of the key things in my culture section, I talk about privilege and the idea that people don't really understand what it means. They feel kind of scolded when they hear privilege to mean you've never done work. But really, it just means there are things that we've all been born with, some of us more than others, that pushes us a little bit forward um, that we had nothing to do with. So, for example, I've never been poor. That has nothing to do with me necessarily working hard. It means my parents were never poor, which gives me certain advantages. Being somebody who's straight, who is cisgender, that's a privilege. Those are privileges that I need to understand. So being like, you know, in the times when we are the most privileged people in the room, our job is to make sure other people are being given a chance and we're using our privilege for them. And then, you know, there are also the shallow things in the book, like how people live their lives out loud on Facebook in ways that's not always true. Oh, my God. Oh, I lo- there's a chapter in my book called Your Facebook is My Favorite Soap Opera because mm-hmm. I love watching some people play out their lives and you always know how it's going to end, especially they're when writing, they're dating. Their writing is the worst. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you that. know, it's it's all of that and more. And I think in general, there's so much more we can all be doing to leave this world better than we found it. I've been thinking a lot lately about this term vulnerability mm-hmm. because there's just such a spectrum of people use that word, but yeah. it's like at any given moment, we might be a little bit more vulnerable. Is there kind of the maximum vulnerability that exists? And people, I'm sure, come up to you and say, like, wow, you're so honest. It's just so refreshing. Yeah. And to you, it's like putting on shoes, right? Yeah. It's kind of like that for me, where I just, like, say stuff that I think. And to me, it seems really normal. 
And for other people, it's like super radical. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes me actually, yes, it's great to share that. But it all, it's also like, what is this world where we're all skulking around just talking about bullshit? Like, yeah. if this is so refreshing, like, that's depressing to me. Um, And so, like, I guess what's my, like, what's the takeaway of that? Like, well, you know, the whole thing about those of us who are vulnerable and truth tellers is people assume just like putting on our shoes that we don't necessarily think twice about it. So they think, oh, it's easy for you. But I always say that it feels like when I went skydiving, sometimes the times that we want to tell the truth that is, you know, if it's a truth that is going to challenge a system or somebody who is more powerful than us, it can be scary. You will actually kind of be like, should I do this? But in those moments, just like when I jumped out the plane, (laughs) that two seconds where I lost my breath after that, I looked around and realized this was the best thing I could have done. I was supposed to do it. So even when it scares you, it's not that it's not going to scare you and that those of us who do it are just not scared and we're just like, go everything, throw it out. No, just who knows what will happen? No, it's that we are acutely aware of what we're doing, but we're saying that the end justifies the means. So what we need to make sure happens or we need to make sure we say is more important than the fear that's keeping us or that's trying to keep us from not saying or doing it. So, yeah. Do you find that, you know, because I'm, I say what I think, but sometimes that can get in your way, can hurt you and the people around you. If you had that experience, how do you make sure that, you know, how do you temper your honesty with knowing who's listening and how that might be perceived? Yeah, I try my best to tell thoughtful truths. And I, you know, of course, I've gotten better since, you know, with age, because in our 20s, I, I had way less tact. But with age, you realize that certain things have to be delivered in a certain way. And for me, in the moments when I want to say or do something difficult, I always ask myself three questions. I have three checkpoints for myself, which is one, do you mean it? Because I don't ever want to say something if it's like, oh, I'm just saying it to be contrarian. No, I'm actually, I actually mean it. Two, can I defend it? Can I stand in that thing if I get challenged in it? And three, did I say with love? And that intention is necessary because it's like my intention should never be to shame somebody, to make somebody look stupid, to just make myself bigger. No, my intention needs to be couched in actively trying to make sure somebody understands what I'm saying and it's not from a place of malice. Mm -hmm. So those three questions, can I defend it? Do I mean it? Did I say with love? It's a checkpoint for myself to make sure that, okay, if I'm taking the risk of hurting somebody around me, it is for a grander reason and I've thought it through. It's not impulsive. It is not just like, what did you say? That makes no sense. So it helps me kind of be my checks and balances. Hey, Girl Boss Radio listeners, interrupting this episode to tell you about another amazing podcast we made in partnership with Uber called Jumpstart. It just launched on Girl Boss Radio and is all about how to level up when it comes to your career and finances. In other words, learning how to perfect your pitch and improve your negotiating skills, something we all want to do. Plus, it's got a whip-smart host co-founder of Away Luggage, Jen Rubio, has been through the venture capital ringer and knows a thing or two about closing a deal. Subscribe to Jumpstart now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 
Hey, girl bosses, dropping in to share a quick message from our partners at Prudential. Earlier this year, they went across the country to discover the biggest financial challenges Americans face today. Over the course of their research, they uncovered some incredible data, like this little nugget. Nearly 40% of new businesses are started by women. In fact, they found that Memphis, Tennessee is home to the highest increase of female-run businesses in the country right now. To learn more about this ambitious group of female entrepreneurs and find out what it's like to take care of your own business and family, head to Prudential.com slash state of us. Now back to our chat with Lovey Ajayi. In Lovey's TED Talk, she spoke about how hard it was to own the title of writer. She opened up about why it was so hard and shared tips for how to overcome imposter syndrome. It took me nine years after I started my first ever blog to say the words, I am a writer, because I didn't see the version of writing that looked like me. I thought writing looked like the people who wrote novels, like the J.K. Rowlands and the Toni Morrisons. And I was like, I'm not in their league. How dare I call myself that? And it made my journey probably longer because the fact that I didn't own it meant I didn't give it the credit it deserved nor did I give it the consideration. I always thought it was a cute hobby because that was safe. Once you actually say, I am a writer, you you have to own it. Mm-hmm. And the things that happen, you take all the blame and consequences for it. And I was like, whew, this is scary. If I say I'm a writer, it takes me away from what I thought I was going to be, which is after doctor failed, then psychologist, and then marketer. But those things have paths that you can follow that take you to the you know the job that you get. Writing? Whether you get a job, whether you can pay your bills is up in the air. But that imposter syndrome also made me write as honest as possible. Because when I said I wasn't a writer, I didn't care what people thought about my writing. Because I'm like, hey, if you hate it, I'm not a writer anyway. It's fine. But that practice over the years of writing honestly was a gift. Because when I finally did say I'm a writer, I already had my voice set. And it wasn't from expectations. It wasn't from strategy. And it wasn't from the idea of I want to impress people. It was just strictly my job here is to tell the truth in the best way that I know how. And it's funny because I also am not. I didn't like grow up saying I want to be a writer. I want to write a book like I'm into legacy. I want to like leave a smear on the world. Um, But I was an author before I considered myself a writer. And even now I don't even necessarily I'm like I write stuff. But what (laughs) makes me a writer? Like I didn't come up in editorial. I don't understand you know, journalistic standards. Mm-hmm. I have a great team that does that here at Girl Boss. But yeah, it's interesting when you have like a more personal way of writing about things, mm-hmm. which I do and which you do. It's often, it can also often be kind of shrugged off as, you know, blogging is something, even with fashion bloggers, they're like, you don't belong here at Fashion Week. Yeah. Or that's bloggy, right? Yeah. And it's actually like the way people communicate now. And it's so much more personal and so much less formal yeah. than it used to be. And I think the definition of a writer is changing. And it's all you have to do is say, I'm a writer and you're a writer. Like, what does that really mean? Yeah, it's you shifted know? considerably because our careers didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Who we are did not exist. There was no prototype. So that is why it was hard to kind of put us in boxes. Those of us who kind of created these um, careers that were a la carte, where people were kind of like, what do you do? And even when you want to answer, you're kind of like, where do I start? And that makes it hard for you to own whatever that thing is. And I had to get to the point to be like, your words get you in the rooms that you didn't even realize ex- existed before. You are a writer. Strictly because, one, you're doing this thing all the time. Two, you're using words to communicate with people all the time. And now you're getting paid for it. And three, why aren't you a writer? 
why would you not be one if this is the thing that you've been doing for such a long time? If that's what people think of when they think of Correct. you. I think that makes you a writer. You're a writer. Anybody who writes anything can say, I'm a writer technically, right? Yeah. You have a viral TED Talk. Yeah. I mean, oh my God. Put, tell me what putting together a TED, was it nerve wracking? Like how long did it take you to prepare? What did it feel like when you're up there? Yeah. Like all so, of it. Just like paint a picture. Okay. So my t- I was invited to do my TED Talk May 2017, I turned it down. Why? <laughs> I turned it down because I was like, I think I'm busy in the fall. I just can't do it. I did not give it much consideration. Imposter syndrome is real. I've been speaking professionally for 10 years, and I was like, Ted, I don't know if I'm ready. So I turned it down. And then they came back again, uh, and I was like, oh, I actually do have something planned for that night because I have to be, I was emceeing a conference in a different city. So I turned it down once again and I was part of the Together Tour and they were like, well, we're doing a panel for Together at TED. Uh, we'd love for you to be a part of it. And I was like, I can't make it. So two weeks before TED Women happened, I realized, oh, I can at least make it to the conference to go share on my Together Sisters uh, because the panel, the the conference that I was emceeing actually ended up starting a day later than I thought. So I hit up Ted. It was like, hey, I, I can at least come for the day just to, you know, cheer on my peoples. And they were like, wait, Pat Mitchell was like, you can come now. You should have a, you should talk. You should be on stage. And I was like, see, that's not going to work because I have to be back in New York City November 2nd, that next morning to MC this conference. They were like, well, you know, Ted Women starts November 1st. We can have you. And I was like, well, the last flight out is 8 p.m. I was looking for excuses. Last flight out of New Orleans is 8 p.m. to New York. They were like, great. We'll just have you open it holy smokes so I was like all right I called one of my friends and said I don't want to get on that stage and bomb I think I'm going to turn it down I'd written a three paragraph email to Pat Mitchell that was like thank you for the opportunity for the vote of confidence but this is not going to work I called my friend unique and she says and I was like everybody has had a speaking coach for the last four months with Ted and they've had their talks they rehearsed it I will be showing up two weeks before brand new I don't think I can do this. My friend said to me, you've been on 10 stages this fall alone. This has been your prep. You've been coached and you've been doing this for 10 years. And she goes, and besides, you're not everybody. You're doing this talk. Go write it. I hung up for her and I spent three hours writing the TED Talk. Three hours? Yeah. Is that all? (laughs) Yeah. I spent three hours writing the TED Talk. I sent it to them thinking they were going to be like, Lovey, this is terrible. Never mind. You're right. You can't do this. They were like, no, we love it. And then you had to memorize it or what? Yes. So (laughs) the night before my TED Talk, because I was on a, uh, I was on the 18 city, basically tour that last fall. The night before my TED Talk, I decided, okay, you know what? I feel like it's missing something. And I scrapped half of it. I deleted half of it, rewrote it at 2 a.m. And uh, memorized it right then and there. And I got on stage at 6 p.m. really nervous. Like I'd been on stages a whole time, but this one made me really nervous because I was like, ah, this is Ted. And I did it in one take. What you saw is unedited, essentially. Yeah. So what did it feel like when you were up there? And what was the reception like? What was the feedback like afterwards? Like, what is it like to walk off that stage? And then what were the following weeks like? It was surreal because I feel like I stepped outside of myself. Uh, when I got on that stage and started speaking, it flowed. It was it was almost like I'd been doing this exact talk the whole year. It felt it was not 
it felt so foreign because I was so afraid and nervous of messing it up. But when I got on the stage, everything came together and people were warm. The people in the audience were warm and cheering. And I remember when I said the last words, which was thank you, I immediately walked off stage. And the uh, the stage manager, as I was walking off stage, grabbed me and pushed me and said, I need you to go see this. And he pushed me back on stage and it was a standing ovation. Oh, wow. I was like, oh my goodness. I I hadn't taken the time to realize what was happening. They were everybody was on their feet cheering and I was stunned. It was the it was an amazing moment. Yeah. But you'd been doing talks for a long time before that. Yeah. Did somebody coach you? Not really. What? I've only ever had one professional coach. Were they and, good? Um and it was for one event that I had. They were just coaching me particularly for the talk that I was doing. Cool. Um, it was a U.S. conference on AIDS. I was speaking there and they assigned every speaker a coach. So I had two sessions with that coach. And that's the only time I'd ever actually had a coach. So how do you prepare? Like, what do you, how do you, how do you structure a yeah. talk? Like, what, how do you kick it off? Like, what's the, is it the hero's journey? Is it like problem solution? Is it like, <laughs> how do you structure a talk? Yeah, I think about what I want to make sure people walk away with. And then I, my three takeaways for every talk is how I end every single talk that I do. Because I'm like, if the, you don't remember anything else, remember these three things. But I always start a talk with a story because stories bring people into your humanity. And it makes them, it hooks them Im- immediately to be like, oh, I get her. So I always start with a story and then I go into the meat of the talk. So I started whatever that story is and then my outline, my three takeaways, and then I fill in the blank. I don't memorize most of my talks because I think it makes it more like it's very robotic, but I memorize my bullet points. So the points that I want to make sure, if nothing else, I say these things. Does your mind ever just go blank? Sometimes. Yeah. But funny thing is, whenever our mind's blank, we're the only ones who know. Uh-huh. So even if you have to pause during the talk to be like, okay, so where I was going was uh-huh. kind of giving yourself the leeway to have those moments and going with the flow how many times do you practice before you get on stage like for one talk you know what's funny maybe once jesus (laughs) i know that is atypical but my thing is um i never want to feel over rehearsed and it if i'm telling my story who knows my story better than me yeah i shouldn't have to rehearse my story eight times some people do because it helps them make sure they know that but but i think i'm like okay i know me Mm -hmm. i know how to tell the story because i was there and then after you tell the story many times, you don't even have to think about it. I have a question because I'm preparing a talk for our the Girl Bus Rally yeah. in a few weeks. And by preparing, I just mean I'm dumping some stuff in a Google Doc yes. and I'm trying to outline it. Yep. And we're we're presenting this really cool product, this like social network that we're building. And I'm trying to start this. I've watched other people's talks, the Airbnb founder launching their trips product. And it all, you know, it is great to start with like a personal story. Yeah. I don't remember so many of like the mini stories in my life where you're like this one time I was talking to someone and they said this and it really had an impact on me. And then I, I'm like, I've talked about the same thing for so long, which is like I started in an email store and then this thing and then there were investors and it's easy to assume that like everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. How long can I, like, is it, like, annoying to keep telling that? Can I keep doing that? Is yes. That like, okay. The answer is yes. Okay. We always assume 
because we center ourselves, we assume, oh my gosh, I've told this story 15,000 times. Surely everybody knows about it now, not necessarily. But two, even if they do know it, it is still relevant to who you are today in this journey. That story will never get tired because it's still a part of how you built the girl boss empire. So when you walk on the stage and you're like, I started this eBay store. Some people know some of the details, right? They know like, oh yeah, she started this eBay store. All of a sudden it got huge and no there's a book and she went bankrupt no (laughs) all the stuff in between yeah most people don't know that also like the takeaways from the things that happen in your life even if you're talking about the same thing like the way i see the last 10 years of my life is totally different than i did six months ago correct so and that reflection helps too like me i've told people about how i got the d in chemistry and what it literally was the moment that changed the course of my life but every single time i tell it it's not like oh here she comes it's legit this is really how i got to this point so It's always valid. 